This is a fourth-hand production. What would we need to assume about a muamua's size and composition to explain its deviation? The key question was how thin a muamua had to be in order to possess the same area-to-volume ratio that accounted for its excess acceleration. We determined that a muamua needed to be less than a millimeter thick for the force of sunlight to be effective. The implication of this was obvious. Nature had shown no ability to produce anything like the size and composition of what our assumptions suggested, so something or someone must have built such a light sail. A muamua must have been designed, built, and launched by an extraterrestrial intelligence. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Now, are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental? I don't you know, know planes that they're building. Police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. Welcome everybody to Strange Uncles. I am Shane. I'm John. I'm Josh. You sound yep. uncertain, sir. Uh, I mean, what is certainty, really? You know, <laughs> I know the everlasting universe. So, anyway, what is certainty besides wrong decisions persevering? Oh, story of my life, man. Don't make me repeat it for that's, sure. That's deep, man. <laughs> for sure. Anyway, welcome everybody to Strange like Uncle Shakespeare. <laughs> As he weaves a tail over there. Uh, yeah, I just miss. Mm, misappropriated a quote from uh wandavision oh nice ah. yeah i uh, would not know i have not gotten into that quite yet so that's next on my list we'll yeah, see what I happens be getting i will not be getting into that yeah. um <laughs> falcon and the winter soldier started on friday which i think you guys would that would be way more your guys's speed is that gonna be on hbo max no nah, it's on disney plus oh mm. well, i guess i have that too for some reason, I can't want to check that out. I'll see. Oh my um, god, I got the, the lady likes Disney Plus. So. The lady, I got so it. fucking stoned and watched uh, the new Justice League Snyder cut the other night, like all in one sitting. That movie is so fucking goddamn long, dude. Yeah, it's four hours, like four hours long. Yeah, four hours and two minutes. Thank you. <laughs> does it need to be that long? No, no it absolutely it does fucking does not. <laughs> There's so many slow mo scenes that are slow mo for no fucking reason. Like, doesn't make the action look cooler. Doesn't. There's no reason for it to be in slow motion. Like, there are two characters. Well, actually, almost all of them, except for Batman. Now that I think about it, that can move at like s- super fast speeds. So, like, slow motion to show that effect kind of makes sense. But like they just randomly will go into slow-mo like matrix style weird shit. And you're just like, uh, are you sure it wasn't because you were stoned and it seemed exceptionally slower than it usually should good be? Question. Good, good question. No, Shane. I think good about question. 10 minutes into the movie. I was like, this movie is long as fuck. <laughs> I told the wife, I says like two hours. I was trying to hype it up. I was like, Oh, but they're explaining the backstory and this is so cool. And it is. But then once you get on the like the two hour, 10 minute mark, then it starts going, oh, cool. Here's the movie. So it's one of those yeah. things. Who's, um, who's playing Batman? 
uh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Oh, it's still Ben Affleck. Yeah. yeah, this is just basically like the re-edited version of the movie that came out a couple years ago. Um, they're giving it the Blade Runner treatment, like they they uh, so Zack Snyder's daughter committed suicide while he was making it, so he stepped away, and they had Joss Whedon come in and uh, finish it. Yeah, and apparently that was the dog shit movie that came out a couple years ago. So they gave him back creative control and let him re-edit it and re and do what he wanted with it, which is why it's four fucking hours long. Oh, weird. So and this movie's already been shot, but this is just Zack Snyder's edited, like his version of yeah. all the material. Oh yeah. This filmed. movie, the, the theatrical release came out in like 2017. 2017 yeah. 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 Oh shit. I thought it was um, a brand new movie. But yeah, I mean, it's basically a completely different movie with a lot of the same scenes. But yeah. uh, I will give it credit, in, as in it made me want to see more Ben Affleck Batman movies now that he's not going to be Batman anymore. He's a badass. I got to say, he plays a really good, uh, I don't know, he's got that dark style about him, you know, that Batman fucking should be. But I don't know. You know, I enjoyed it. Like I said, it was one of those, if you... Well, he well, said a swear to the Joker... It was whoa. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I will say for anybody, chef's kiss <laughs> for anybody who is uh, just awesome with you know they love the superheroes, they love the DC Marvel universe and all this stuff going on. It is well worth the watch, but yes, it is long drawn. We had to break it up into two different nights because I got a little buzz halfway through it. And I'm like, I'm not paying attention. I'm I'm done. So, am I glad I watched it? Yes. Will I ever watch it again? Probably fucking not. Exactly. <laughs> But anyway, no, too cool, man. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to kind of talk a little bit about that. Um, Before we jump into the episode, and we've actually got a great one here. John actually will kick it off a little bit. Uh, I was going to share with you guys something. One thing I find really cool is the people that we have on the show, the guests that we invite on, that actually come to find out, turn around and listen to the episode they're on. Like, we never get that feedback, right? Because you don't know whether they just start doing these interviews one after another. You know, they've heard a, pre- a, a previous episode of another guy to test our, test our waters and see how we are. I don't mm-hmm. know. We just don't get good feedback like that. But I got an email today. Um, remember when we were talking about uh, John Russell? We actually had him on the last episode. And mm-hmm. he actually is the paranormal investigator slash psychic, um, avid biker. You know, he rides around. He's done all these adventures and these things that he runs into. And I think the conversation turned into how many miles did he, did he ride his bike? Uh, Melissa, by the way. And is that circumference, circumference of the earth type thing? Remember that conversation? Yeah. Okay. Well, I got this email this morning. Us being trying to be brainiacs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What Which happens is far too often, considering <laughs> our combined mental I'll powers. Watch. But yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I smell smoke as I'm thinking right now. Actually, so this is an email from John Russell, and this is what he says. He says, "You know, guys, I never thought about it until you brought it up on the podcast. On my current bike alone, I've ridden the equivalent of four point five seven times around the world." I've been writing since I was 15 or 16, so no telling how many more times around. Laugh out loud. Thanks again for the great interview. All the best, John Russell. Oh, so, hell yeah. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool, and he kind of, yeah. you know, put it in a little, put a bow on it and tied it nice and tidy, I thought. That's so, awesome. That's, yeah. a, that's a lot of motorcycle riding. Uh, that's a lot of motorcycle. Well, that's yeah. a lot of anything traveling, but especially on a motorcycle. Woof. Yeah. You know, that's insane. So yeah, very I mean, impressive. unless he's, like, got one of those... Uh, geezer glides that's 
I mean, that's wears a lot to on do you after a, a while. That's a lot to do in a car. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. You know, traveling or not, yeah, it's insane. Anyway, we thought we'd share that uh, with you folks, you listeners. You know, it was kind of neat when we get feedback like that. Um, and by all means, you know, if you have feedback on any episode we do, you know, you can write us at strangeuncles at gmail.com, uh, or you can call us at 801 uh, 801- 1645 Yeah, that's Are it. Are you sure? I'm not sure <laughs> if that's right or not. Anyway. Uh, fuck it. If you guys want to yeah. call, try and call that number if it works, then, hey, you're in luck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just leave a message no matter, <laughs> no matter what happens. Phone, no matter whose phone number that is, uh, just leave him a message. Um, Some old lady in Poughkeepsie that we don't, <laughs> that we don't even know. <laughs> but anyway, um, all co- too cool. So, you know, feedback is appreciated for sure. Uh, we are going to get into a subject, and I don't know if you guys have anything to kick off beforehand. This kind of stemmed from, number one, our fascination about the whole thing, but it started with you, John. You actually had a book that you picked up by an author, um, and I'll let you kind of roll it out, but uh, very, very interesting book, very great perspective on this matter, on this subject that we're going to talk about, and we wanted to kind of come on the show and dissect it and really kind of give it, I guess, its meat and bones. Um, I don't know. I find it fascinating personally, but, uh, do you guys got anything to add past that? Uh, no, I'm fucking pumped. I think this is going to be fun to talk about. Yeah. Well, um, so I talked about this, I think on the last news episode that I had picked up, uh, the new book by Avi Loeb called extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth. And, uh, I kind of like briefly mentioned, you know, how awesome of the book it was and just how much I was enjoying reading it and everything. And I finished it. It's a super easy read, super fast. So I finished it a bit ago, but I kind of wanted to just talk about it more in length with you guys and with the listeners and kind of tell people from kind of Avi's scientific points and everything kind of tell you, uh, or explain to the best of my ability and best of our abilities um, with my non-science background, um, kind of what <laughs> Oumuamua definitely wasn't. Yes, absolutely. There's, yeah, and I think I caught that from the book. Um, there's other things we're going to follow up with as far as new news about Oumuamua and other things. So if you guys are ready, we're going to roll into um, Oumuamua. What do we think it was? Open the gates. fast-moving visitor to our solar system may have been a probe sent by an advanced alien civilization. It's an alien spacecraft. Some sort of alien technology, perhaps exploring the cosmos. It's called Oumuamua. On October 19, 2017, at the Haleakala Observatory in Hawaii, human beings detected the first ever visitor from interstellar space, an object from outside our own solar system. Then, something even more strange happened. And that more strange is what we're going to get into, because I think that's what fascinates me the most. Not only the story of it, but uh, what A.V. lines out in the book. You know, And with that being said, too, a lot of what we took from this, of course, you know, most people know Oumuamua. You know, they know the encounters, they know the 
the reports and what it was, scientists on different sides, whatever have you. A lot of stuff that's been kind of in the fires. But we take a lot of our research um, from Avi and his book just because of how he approached it. And there's some key facts that all three of us, like you can't walk away from. You can't just chuck the, the trash can and go, okay, well, that doesn't count. So I just want to say that uh, first of all. And then, uh, John, I don't know if you want to recap Avi's um, God, his knowledge. I mean, the guy is just fucking phenomenal on what he's yeah. involved in. He's he's pretty impressive, and I think it's Avi. But um, no, the uh, Avi Loeb is uh, an incredible scientist, um, and his accolades and his qualifications are insane. And I I talked about it, like I said on the news episode. But I'm gonna go just kind of rehash what I kind of what his qualifications are and everything. Um, at the time of his writing of this book, he served as chair of Harvard university's department of astronomy, founding director of Harvard's black hole initiative, director of the Institute for theory and computation within the Harvard Smithsonian center for astrophysics chair of chair of the breakthrough Starshot initiative chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the national academics, a member of the advisory board for the digital platform, Einstein visualize the impossible from the Hebrew university of Jerusalem and a member of the president's council of advisors on science and technology in Washington, DC. Mm. So what I'm getting from this is very lazy, <laughs> uh, very unaccomplished, very right. uh, probably doesn't know shit. Yeah. yeah, just has yeah, no idea what he's doesn't talking Doesn't give a about. shit whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, this um, guy. Yeah, he, he's just, he's he's out there, and uh, he wrote some stupid book that we're going to talk about. So, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, uh, yeah, the dude's incredible, and the book was amazing. I didn't really know too much about Oumuamua before I read the book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'd heard about it, and I think we even talked about it a while ago. Yeah, yeah, we had a news um, report. I think a couple times. We yeah, we've yeah. we've covered it a few times, just kind of as the whole thing developed. But yeah, but I never like you know I didn't know the the whole story of it. I was like, oh, okay, some interstellar thing traveled through our sky, you know, crazy. Um, so it was discovered according to my notes on October one hundred twenty ninth, twenty seventeen. But um, actually, it was October 19th. That was just a typo in my notes. <laughs> I was going to say uh, October 129,000. <laughs> Are we talking? Uh, yeah, is this Star Trek years? Uh, discovered on October 19th, 2017 by astronomer Robert Wurick at the Haleakal Observatory on the island of Maui. And it came from the direction of the star Vega. And so I guess Hawaii has some of like the most sophisticated telescopes on the planet. There's a ton of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually while you're on that subject real quick, I'm sorry, but one thing in his book that he explains what really does revolve around our technology and what we can pick up and how the reason that the last from like 2015, I think if I believe some of the more recent telescopes that were built because of the apertures and how big the lenses actually are is how far they can see out. And that's why this last, what guys, what 2000, it's been the last like four or five years that literally our finding of all these exoplanets past our solar system and out have been astronomical, like in the hundreds, like it is crazy just because of that. I saw a ticker that I think we've found, oh man, something like 4,000 exoplanets something like yeah. that. Like I saw this thing, uh, 
I, earlier today, actually talking about this new satellite that they're building in uh, Chile, but that's neither here nor there. But um, so there's a bunch of state-of-the-art telescopes that make up the Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response Systems, and it's called PanStars-1. And Weirik is the first person to ever find an interstellar object detected in our solar system. Mm-hmm. And he kind of noticed it because it was traveling too fast to be bound by our sun's gravity. Um, apparently, how fast it was going was nothing can go that fast, apparently. So you'll have to excuse me. You know, I don't have a PhD in physics or <laughs> astro, you know, anything like that. So, but um, yeah, so by the time, by the time astronomers even had a name for Oumuamua, it had already, it was already 20 million miles away from earth. Like this yeah. thing was flying by and we didn't really, we didn't realize what we, what was going through our solar system until it was kind of too late. Like, had we have known it, like had we have known of this earlier, we would have been able to train all our telescopes on it and really get some good data and really get some like really awesome observations. Right. Um, Such a shame, but we kind of saw it as it was already kind of passing us. So you're saying it was hauling ass. It was. Yeah. I think it was, Oh man, I saw, I want to say it was something in there. Um, like apparently, it, was... it sped around the sun at almost two hundred thousand miles per hour. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was going to say. That's kind of the trajectory it was traveling. I think in general. Yeah. I so, mean, I can hit that in the Malibu. You know. <laughs> Good the luck, old Malibu. Two hundred k. The bumper followed off. So. And uh, do you guys want to know what Oumuamua loosely translates? Yes, to? please enlighten. Um, it loosely translates to scout in Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was cool that they kind of named it that, but then I wonder, like, <laughs> a hopefully apropos name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it was named in infancy. You know, of course, seeing this thing from the beginning, um, I find that ironic that that's actually the the name they came up with for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Especially after all, you know, reading the book and and what we're going to lay out out on the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, well, it actually had three different designations too. Um, in November of 2017, the International Astronomical Union. Um, it's the organization that names like newly identified objects in space. It changed its destination uh, for the third and final time. So initially the IAU called it C slash 2017 U1. The C was for comet. And then it switched to A 2017 U1. And the A was obviously for asteroid. And then finally the IAU declared it uh 1i2017 and the mm. i stood for interst- uh, interstellar and basically the only thing that astronomers can agree on with this thing is that it is an interstellar object that it right. was not from our solar system and that's basically about like the only thing scientists can agree on isn't that crazy and well, in the yeah in the book he he lays out a lot of kind of how close-minded science scientists are and the science world is. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, if you don't mind there's actually, I, I want to read a quote right from um, um, AV's book here that before we go into his theory, but not just his, but other scientists as well. But you know, he's the one that kind of the driving force behind it. 
Um, but this explains exactly what you're saying, John. He says, I quote, in the spirit of transparency, I know that some scientists find my hypothesis unfashionable outside of mainstream science, even dangerously ill-conceived. But the most egregious error we can make, I believe, is not to take this possibility seriously enough. And then he says, let me explain. And that's where the book rolls into. And I think that kind of sets up his findings. And when we talk about the dispute in the scientific community, well, us as a whole in general, but mainly the scientific community um, about what they think it may or may not be. So, yeah. Well, and he brings up uh, at some point in the book, like how much further along humans would have been if we were more open and less close-minded to certain things. Like Mm -hmm. he talks about Galileo and he told, he told them like, just no, look at my telescope. You can see that we're rotating around the sun. Like the sun isn't rotating. Just like, look in the, like, look, I'm trying to show you what I'm seeing. And they didn't have, you know, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And the church ended up like exiling him. Oh, the church. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually a more recent uh, issue rather than that is he uses the example of World War One and two. You know, in case if we didn't really take all of our efforts and our billions of dollars during the war to focus on this, what if we focused on NASA? What if we focus on exploration for, you know, four decades prior? Where would we be well, now? You know? I mean, NASA's budget even now is like a fucking Insane. drop in the bucket. Yeah. Compared yeah. to everything else. No. I do think it's pretty interesting and, and that it's a pretty big deal even just to say that the one thing that all they, that the astronomers and the scientists can agree on is that it's an interstellar object. Like that alone, I think is pretty fucking amazing. Like not just Mm -hmm. that they agreed, but that it's an interstellar object. I think that's right. Insane. Right. Yeah, it truly is. And, um, so I don't know if we touch on this, but basically Avi Loeb's hypothesis is that, Oumuamua isn't a comet. It isn't an asteroid. And it is something that was built intelligently from some far off distant uh, civilization, an advanced civilization. Like, and it, it, it has intelligent design. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he really breaks down why he has this hypothesis in great detail. And uh, it's it's really fascinating, and it's kind of crazy that his peers just kind of um, they didn't focus on that. A, a lot of them just don't want anything to do with it. You know, they're too worried about their funding, and they're too worried about this and their reputations, and it's it's kind of crazy. Um, he also talks about uh, I forget in the book where it is, but it's like you know, science right now accepts the fourth dimension. We accept like entered like all these different dimensions we accept string theory as fact and all this and he's like there's actually zero evidence of any of this yeah like these yeah. are just wormholes and all this other we, stuff but yeah. we all accept it he's like but really there's no not one bit of evidence for this and he's like with Oumuamua there's a ton of evidence to explain what it isn't yeah 
No, absolutely. And I think, and that's the same with wormholes and everything else. And just for a little background, um, and we're going to take a quick break too deep into the muck and mire, this whole thing. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, he's got, you know, this isn't, number one, this isn't his first book, which, you know, I'd love to read his other ones. I And I think, I, God, John, I could be wrong. I think he said he had four books altogether. Is that uh, he's, yeah, he's got he's got a or handful. five. He's got a handful, and yeah, he's actually sure exactly he's published papers. He's published papers and and announced them with other scientists, um, other partners. Like like he's not a, you know, I guess we say this because he's not a young chicken at this. You know, he's been around this before with other uh, similarities and other uh, viewpoints of what he believes. In. Like he's been doing this for quite some time. He's had the love forever. So you know, the guy just. Number one, he's got something behind him to really back what he has to say. And I think that's one thing, like you said, John, really struck me odd was how much the fellow scientists absolutely put a wall up and go, nope, we can't do this over here. You know, if we believe in this, we're going to lose funding. If we believe this, we're going to lose, which to me, you know, that's how we don't get anywhere as a species anyway, let alone, you know, when you stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Everything is like super politicized and like. You can't you can't dream big and have the big ideas anymore because you get laughed at. Yep. And I don't think that's even necessarily new. You know what I mean? Like, oh, no, not, not at all. It's not. It's not new. It goes back to Galileo being like, no, I can prove it. Just look at my yeah. telescope. And they're like, nah. no, nope. no. Yeah. Church, church is going to lock you up. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, and it seemed, but what I think is even more crazy uh, is that we fucking repeat this over and over again and we don't learn to expand on that mindset, to expand on something else, to expand on new ideas. It's weird because in one form we do and another form, we absolutely fucking shut the doors and it just, it, it has always baffled me from day one. So I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're actually going to um, kind of unravel his theory, I guess. And again, John, you're going to kind of lead the show on this one, but uh, you know, we'll explain why we're so enthused about it. And we'll explain why um, this Amuamua really stands out to be something that we probably should have paid a lot more attention to than we really did and we should so anyway stand by everybody believe in ufos felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain contemplate the other side of reality do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense well look no further than strange uncles Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. All right, so what did Oumuamua look like? Well, we did not and do not have a Chris photograph of the object to rely on. Um, but we do have data from all of those telescopes that were dedicated for about 11 days right. to c- collecting whatever they could. Um, and once we had our telescopes trained on Oumuamua, we looked for one bit of information in particular, how Oumuamua reflected sunlight. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, which is very strange. So um, there's a quote he had in here. I don't know if you got a John on your side. This kind of this kind of dives it all together uh, for explaining what it is. And again, I I got to say, so I'm a fell into the same rabbit hole in the beginning when this thing was first spotted. Of course, like anything else in social media and all that bullshit, you know, we got the artist rendition and mm-hmm. how they drew a muamua 
and how it's described by the astronomers, uh, not only you know his scientists, but um, you know, Av himself, is just the shape. And the two and two couldn't be much different, right? I mean, you know, you see all the artist depictions is this big rock, like a pillar flying through space. Yeah, it looks like a big stone cigar. Yeah, yeah, and that Which, isn't in fact, necess- it's not a cigar. Um, no. There's like somewhere in here I've, I've got it highlighted but um this one scientist working for a university it's like 91 percent like a pancake type object. right right so it's it's not a cigar at all yeah yeah and actually but, here's a here's a quick quote from the book um this kind of explains the shape and what it is when they initially observed it he says in addition to being small and oddly shaped a muamua was strangely luminous Despite its diminutive size, as it passed the sun and reflected the sun's light, a muamua proved to be relatively bright, at least 10 times more reflective than typical solar system asteroids and or comets. If, as seems impossible, a muamua was a few times smaller than the upper limit of a few hundred yards that scientists presumed it to be, its reflectivity would approach unprecedented values, levels of brightness similar to a shiny metal. I found that interesting when they talk about how it comes off the sun's reflection. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, And for astrophysicists and objects, changing brightness provides invaluable clues to its shape. So in the case of Oumuamua, the object's brightness varied tenfold every eight hours, which they deduced to be the amount of time that it took to complete one full rotation. Mm -hmm. So this, Dramatic variability in its brightness told us that Oumuamua's shape was extreme, or at least five to ten times longer than it was wide. To these dimensions, they added further evidence about Oumuamua's size. The object, we could say with certainty, was relatively small. Its trajectory near the sun meant that Oumuamua should have a very hot surface temperature, something that would have been visible to the infrared camera of the Spitzer Space Telescope, which NASA launched back in 2003. Um, however, Spitz, Spitzer's camera was unable to detect any heat coming off Oumuamua. This encouraged us to surmise that Oumuamua must have been small and thus hard for the telescope to detect. We estimated its length at about 100 yards or around the size of a football field and its width at less than 10 yards. Keep in mind that even a razor-thin object often appears to possess some width at a random orientation in the sky. Oumu- so Oumuamua's actual width could actually be smaller than that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and they were actually talking like the thickness too. And I don't know if you mm. caught that. That literally, they're thinking that the thick. If they do all the observations of what they saw and the light refraction, that it couldn't be more than a millimeter thick. Mm-hmm. Which makes it again that goes by your pancake theory. You know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it says like a the- millimeter, like like a millimeter. Yeah, like a like a hunk of like a plate almost. Well, no, In like space. I mean. Like a dime, like I well, mean, a dime th- is we're talking than a millimeter. Well, but. yeah, but with thickness wise, you know, not your like width and your length, but you're talking the thickness of what it actually yeah, that's is. Exactly uh, what I'm talking about. Yeah, and then the reflection too. Oh, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, one other thing too on here, uh, he mentions a muamua sped part of the way around the sun. It's oh, actually, John, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or not. This. Do we want to get into the trajectory at all? Or are we done with the shape or? Um, well, no, you kind of, you kind of uh, summed up a bit of it. So well, yeah, addition to being small and oddly shaped, a was uh, very luminous. So it was reflecting sunlight. Mm-hmm. So 
that's that's i mean we can also yeah we can get into the deviation. can before we move on can i ask you guys to describe the shape to me like i'm just having a really hard time visualizing it so like it was what maybe a hundred yards in length 10 yards in width and a millimeter in thickness yes that's what their nearest deduction and the thickness and the shape and all that is is basically the light refraction is how they accumulated that again back to you know 10 times different light reflective than what a comet or meteor would be and so that's their deduction so basically a super flat long somewhat wide very very thin piece of something yeah kind of like a sail yeah like and i'm not even setting anything up because i know that comes later mm-hmm. i hadn't like paid a lot of attention to uh that part of it i just saw the word solar sail in there somewhere um but i had this is the first that i'm hearing of them thinking that it was like a millimeter thick because that's right fucking thin as hell right yeah, and th- that, that surprised is, me too when I was right. And that's to, and just to kind of clarify too, that's not AV stating that. That is actually the observations that describe that that's what it would be. That's why I mentioned a lot of the times, like the artist depictions, like you said, it's a giant cigar shaped rock. No, that's not the case. That's not what they, once they went through all the data and all the analytics in that 11 days, I think, right, John, where we observed, they went through that yeah. 11 days of the statistics and they looked and they gathered all that. That's when they concluded, look, this, this is what we, as near as we can figure, this is what it looks like. And again, a lot of that's off the sun's light, you know, once it got close to that trajectory of that sun's orbit. Well, and I know um, space is hella big and empty, but it's not like super empty. So it's just wild to me that uh, something that's a millimeter thick could could be. Not get jam packed with an something else. Inter, interstellar traveling object and not like lose its shape at all if it's one millimeter thick but also a hundred yards wide and ten yards or a hundred yards long and ten yards wide like that's agreed a pretty big (laughs) plane of very thin material to like not get shredded by passing through the Oort cloud or the asteroid belt or any Mm -hmm. of that shit. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually you bring up a very good point. I think that's why that's the first thing that's very interesting about a Muamua is once they describe that. And once they find out what that shape and the, you know, what the dimensions are is to your point, how the fuck. And on top of the fact is we know that all the scientists agree that it's interstellar. So that means it has got to have some traveling behind it, right? Maybe not 5.6 times around the world like John Russell's motorbike, but we know well, it's traveling. Yeah, you know? but I mean, so how? Uh, without off the top of hit? my head, I don't know how far away Vega is, but it's fucking pretty far. Right, right. How do you not you get know? nailed by a meteorite or nailed by a random comet or nailed by another piece of space junk that may or may not be ours? You know, I mean, it's just a lot of random things that it just it, when i read that i was like oh god but how how does it survive so that's a very that's a very good point you know to be honest with you yeah sorry i didn't mean to derail everything but no I just no not like, at all I, not at all i was not picking up what you were putting down when you said the dimensions of the of the object i was like wait what yeah that makes yeah. zero sense to and me. in um and in defense of that too there's some that scientists don't agree necessarily agree that that was the exact dimension most of them do that did the case study and that actually tracked it 
um, that that's what they came up with. So look, it's got to be this. And and from what I can read in the book, because there was really I didn't read any disputable things from other fellow scientists in regards to that shape. And that's what initially led AV to go, okay, well, you know, we need to think a little bit more out of the box here. Um, and John, I don't know if you're ready, you want to go into, do, do we have anything more into like the travel, the velocity, anything like that? Yeah. Well, um, here's the thing about kind of like <clears throat> proving that it wasn't cigar, cigar shaped. Um, so he says yet another scientist and astrophysicist at McMaster university went back to the evidence to see if he could provide an answer. He evaluated all the brightness models, the data allowed and concluded the likelihood of Oumuamua being cigar shaped was small. And the likelihood of Oumuamua being disc shaped was about 91%. You should keep this percentage in mind when you see the umpteenth artist rendition of Oumuamua's cigar shaped rock. Um, should also keep it in mind uh, when reading any ex- explanation for naturally occurring oblong objects, such as the low probability processing of melting and tidal stretching along a rare trajectory that passes very close to a star, the value of which is mooted when it comes to Oumuamua, given this analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, so there's this thing. So the I guess the brightness and variation kind of the variation in brightness gives us this shape. Um, like I said, some of it's a little over my head. I don't know how they figured this out, but that's apparently, it's apparently what they've, how they did it. Well, not only that, um, but they do also, like you mentioned in the beginning, they took into account that because of that reflectiveness and, you know, of course there's certain telescopes that have certain sensors on them where they pick up a heat signature, they pick up something to that effect, uh, uh, you know, for as close as a Muamua was to the sun, it shouldn't have have had the heat signature that it actually did because of yeah. its reflective material. I don't remember it saying that it was a millimeter thick, but I know it was very thin. But if, if they did say it, then that's... I'll, I'll look. I think I've got that airmocked here somewhere. That caught me off guard, and I highlighted that extremely All I see is like crazy. with a length at least five to ten times greater than its width allowed only two possible shapes. Yeah, so, and he used an analogy of like if you saw a human walking down the road it would literally have a waist the size of your wrist and something so like he used an analogy to that to kind of compare yeah. what it might have been well so. so okay so it has a few anomalies the first one being <clears throat> how it reflects sunlight and the luminosity mm-hmm. of this object mm-hmm. the second huge one is deviation so basically yes. as a mumu sped part uh, partway around the sun, its trajectory deviated from what was expected based on the sun's gravitational force alone. Uh, and there wasn't an obvious explanation for why its trajectory changed. So basically one of the most fundamental physical laws that govern everything is Sir Isaac Newton's first law of motion. Every object persists in its state of rest or uniform motion in a straight line, unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed on it. Right. You're going to go straight until something knocks you this way. Right. Impact. Um, Yeah. So on September 29th, or on September 9th, excuse me, 2017, Oumuamua sped around the sun at almost 200,000 miles per hour, gaining momentum from the sun's gravitation and kicked in a different direction of motion. So in June of 2018, research reported that Oumuamua trajectory deviated slightly, but to a highly statistical, statistically significant extent from a path shaped by the sun's gravity alone. This is because it accelerated away from the uh, 
from the sun being pushed by an additional force that declined roughly as a square of the distance from the sun. So comets from the solar system show a deviation similar to Oumuamua's, but they are accompanied by a cometary, cometary tail of dust and water vapor from ice heated by sunlight. And those tails act as kind of a jet that pushes right. the comet. Mm-hmm. So and because of that rocket effect, an outgassing comet can deviate from a path shaped by the sun's gravitation alone. Yeah. So comets can do that, but there was no type of outgassing with Oumuamua. Well, and it's it's a it's a rough it's not a smooth uh push away or deviation of course with a comet because uh they have an irregular rough surface um irregularly distributed ice and shit that's going to be providing that off-gassing. Um the only thing regular about it is that it does push away from the sun because that's what's heating everything and causing that off gassing. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But right. it is, I mean, I mean, if you look at like the space shuttle or like any of the, of the, uh, spacecraft we have today, that's how they maneuver is just like little jets of air that they push out. Right. Yeah. Um, and this is just that on like a comet scale. Um, speaking of it in the sense of a comet. Um, so to me, that makes sense of it, like being a natural object or something that was, created either way um but i did want to like call that out um as far as the difference between the motion i think you're probably about to get into the difference between the motion um in the deviation from omuamua and the and like what would typically happen with a comet Mm -hmm. um but yeah well yeah so so omuamua didn't reveal any trace of water carbon-based gases or dust really not the possibility that it was being pushed by cometary vapor or visible dust particles. Um, it also did not change its spin rate as it should have if one-sided jets were pushing it sideways, as they often do in comets. Right. So then, too, a, a massive evaporation would have changed the tumbling period of Oumuamua, a phenomenon that is seen in solar system comets. So no such change in the spin rate was recorded. So none of that happened. Um and we know that Oumuamua showed no outgassing visible um, to the infrared camera aboard the Spitzer Space Telescope called the Infrared Array Camera, or IRAC. So IRAC is the infrared camera on the Spitzer Space Telescope. And it didn't pick up... Infrared camera on the Space Telescope was ideal for surveying how much carbon dioxide comets produced Um To an infrared camera, sufficient carbon dioxide is plainly visible. And because carbon is routinely part of comets' icy mix and carbon dioxide is routinely the byproduct of the evaporation of that mix, when it is put under heat and stress, they frequently use Spitzer to observe comets passing. So IRAC, that's the infrared camera, it was trained on Oumuamua for 30 hours as it sped past the sun and had there even been a trace of carbon dioxide and Oumuamua's outgassing, the camera should have been able to observe it, but Iraq saw nothing, not a right. trail of gas behind the object and certainly not the object itself. And interestingly, the Spitzer space telescope did not detect any heat being emitted from Oumuamua either, implying that it must be shinier than a typical comet or asteroid. That is the only way it could have reflected as much sunlight as it did while still being small enough not to produce much heat. And other scientists using state-of-the-art equipment recorded results similar to the IRAC data. 
So in 2019, astronomers reviewed images collected by the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO, and the Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory, STEREO, taken in early 2017 when Oumuamua was near perihelion, which means uh, closest to the sun. So built to observe the sun, STEREO and SOHO were not intended to be comet finders, although after they identified its 3,000th comet, NASA declared it's the greatest comet finder of all time. So just like Spitzer, Soho, and Stereo did not detect anything in the area, to these instruments, Oumuamua was invisible. This can only mean that Oumuamua had a water production rate that was smaller than any of the previously reported limits by at least an order of magnitude. Invisible to Spitzer's Iraq, to Soho, and to Stereo, and yet Oumuamua deviated. Yeah, interesting. Another difficulty with the outgassing hypothesis um, basically regardless of whether Oumuamua outgassed pure hydrogen or not, and this is kind of tying into that, the new article that Debrief came out on, um, its acceleration during deviation was smooth and steady. So comets have a rough and irregular surface and retain unevenly distributed ice. So as the sun melts the ice and the outgassing produces propulsion, it does so across that rough and pitted surface. So, it has a like a herky-jerky acceleration, he describes it as. So Oumuamua had the exact opposite reaction in, accelerate, in its acceleration when it deviated. Right, so it was yeah. a smooth acceleration, right? Smooth, steady, yep. just... Yep. Something like someone was, turned on the... Someone hit the gas? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in not a jerky motion. And, so, yeah. Someone hit the gas in the millimeter-thick spaceship. <laughs> And you know, again, you know, all all points are leading to this is seems something more made rather than yeah right is occurring right yeah. Let's do there's yeah there's some other points too that um, just kind of wrap up. I think the big ones we hit, which really is you know the shape, the refraction of light, and then you know of course the deviation is is a is a huge part of it because it just doesn't make sense at you know at all, especially as big as the Um, sun is. So with disintegration and everything, so outgassing isn't the only explanation for why an object would deviate from a path shaped by the sun's gravity alone. Uh, Another explanation has to do with the object's disintegration, and we can break after this. Um, If an object fractures, breaks up, and becomes smaller, objects surrounded by dust and particles, the smaller objects follow a new trajectory. Thus, if a muamua began to break up around the time it reached the perihelion, which means closest to the sun, that disintegration might have caused the object to deviate from the path dictated by the sun's gravity. The problem with using this explanation in the case of a muamua is that, just as with outgassing, our telescopes should have been able to register something. In this case, the relic fragments and dust from such a disintegration. It is unlikely that ice would have no carbon and even more unlikely that a disintegrating rock would contain no carbon. Further, one must wonder whether a collection of smaller objects would appear as a single body. Oumuamua, the evidence shows, continued to tumble every eight hours like a solid object with a persistent extreme shape. Right. And the object's smooth acceleration also defies the hypothesis that Oumuamua fractured around perihelion, breaking up and losing enough of its mass to explain its deviation deviated path our instruments observe no debris indicating such a fracturing and disintegration in fact we saw evidence of the opposite a smooth steady acceleration hmm. interesting yeah. very yeah. interesting 
Um, let's take a break and let's come back with uh, – we'll wrap up his theories and some of his hypothesis and then other ones that are recent in the news uh, in regards to this. And then uh, you know, we can go from there. Of course, any questions, you know, we'll, we'll answer them. So stand by. Follow Strange Uncles down the rabbit hole of the wild and bizarre as they uncover history that shouldn't be talked about, topics that don't fit into the norm, and conspiracies that sometimes run amok. Find our website at mystrangeuncles.com, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Strange Uncles, or check out our YouTube channel, Strange Uncles Podcast, where we are adding new content every week. Open the gates. All right, and we're back. Um, so we covered some of the highlights, I think, mainly because, you know, the, of course, the reflection, um, the fact of the deviation, which fascinates me with the sun's orbit. One theory that he holds, and he's got a couple of them, but one that kind of sets forth that, that we stumbled on, and uh, this is something that actually other scientists had an idea of, and he wrote a hypothesis a uh, few years actually before Amuamua was found. And it is the light sail hypothesis. And I can go into it. I don't know, John, if you want to or not, about what a light sail may or may not be and what he thinks it is. I've got some highlighted things here. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, so. he kind of just thinks it's like the possibility that we would find flying through our solar system, like technological relics with no detectable mm-hmm. uh, functionality. Um, basically, for example, pieces of equipment that had lost power over the millions of years of their travel and become space junk. Um, yeah, exactly. And again, this is all plausible theory, you know, of, of thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's like a very long, somewhat wide, very thin thing, that does make sense. Like a light sail does kind of make sense to that, you know, especially mm-hmm. to the deviation. If like, uh, if if when it was after it hit the perihelion and started its deviation, it might have just been doing what it's supposed to do, like catching those solar uh rays the the radiation from the sun and mm-hmm. fucking using that as propulsion right like right. what a light sail is supposed to do exactly and and that's what made it traverse from you know interstellar travel to where it's at now i mean that's a whole purpose of why it would be designed you know well, and eventually so we mankind have sent five man-made objects into interstellar space right so eventually so we've spent sent we have Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, Pioneer 10 and 11, mm-hmm. and New Horizons. Mm-hmm. So eventually, those things are going to stop working. Those are going to be flying in space. I mean, unless they get hit by something and completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. You know, but if they don't like slam into something, they're going to be going infinity. Well, not necessarily, it, not necessarily working. Like They're not going to work forever, but right. like, yeah. humanity could be well destroyed and wiped off of the face of the planet. And these things are still going to be going. Still going. And isn't it so, Voyager this, 1 that is like the furthest one? I mean, isn't that one I read like last year? Literally, it's still like they can't see anything with it because all that stuff got shut down. But it it has reached the outer envelopes of our solar system and a little bit past. Like it's the furthest thing that we've ever had. And it was launched in, what, 71, I think, that first Voyager probe. You know, yeah, so. Voyager 1 was launched on Monday, September 5th, 1977. Mm. And Voyager 2 was launched Saturday, August 20th, 1977. Um, so they've been going. So Voyager 1 has been going for 43 years, 6 months, 18 days, 12 hours, 21 minutes, and 44 seconds. Still going. 
You know, and, and yeah. Is, uh, does anybody have any guess at how it's crazy how oh man, these things are really far away from Earth. I just always think about the first Star Trek movie and V'ger and Josh, mm-hmm. you're with me on that one. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, one thing, Voyager 1 is 14 billion 137 million 51,000 and 200 and something miles uh, from Earth. Insane. Insane if you think. And now now add, now quadruple that on top of that. You know, and again, there's a really cool, and we're not going to get in detail, but I do want to mention that uh, this book isn't all about talking about uh, Muamua. A lot of it is conjecture and theory in regards to alien life, um, the Fermi paradox, the Drake equation. You know, you think about how many different alien civilizations possibly could be, not saying that there is, because he doesn't really say there is, but he does all these equations to say, look, you know, the Earth was made like it was inhabitable 3.8 billion years ago um at the 4 billion mark it was completely uninhabitable if you look at that on a larger scale in all these other civilizations and all these other planets like you know not to go down the rabbit hole but he touches base on that because he tries to do an equation of you know even if they launched thousands of these things every day for a week or whatever have you whatever their time is that for the the anomaly of that one thing passing into our solar system even then is just so stretched thin like it's really neat how he breaks down that equation he breaks down that theory first of all yeah but you know and so and a good point john you know like look at what we have and that's what 40 something 50 something years here we are and they're still traveling so what's the plausibility well, they're still traveling but you they're know? also just barely getting out of the heliosphere like they're just barely crossing over from uh basically the sun's version of earth's magnetic field that like envelops the whole solar system and protects us from all the like shit that's out in open space Mm -hmm. the way our uh magnetic field protects us from the shit flying around in inner space um but that like 40 years and they're just barely leaving the neighborhood. They're just barely getting yeah, out of the subdivision. Right. You know, right. could you, could you yeah. add a thousand onto that or 5,000 onto that on, on say hypothetically another civilization that launched something that, you know, again, we talked during the break a little bit might be a buoy. It might just, maybe it's a, a just, maybe it's a trigger thing. Maybe it's something that they designed to, you know, if there was another civilization close by it, it triggered enough, like it's kind of like a little, you know, a traffic light out there in space for this civilization. Like he's got a lot of plausibilities, but all of that wraps up to be the same thing that, you know, really that's what a light sail is. I mean, you can make that function in that kind of, of a, of a thing, you know, and then that's just absolutely amazing. And then yeah, think if it's 500,000, a million years old from a civilization that might be defunct because we don't know, we can only look back in the universe, how many billions of years to which galaxy, you know, because of, you know, light years and everything else. And we're seeing literally, we, you know, we can't see back to the Big Bang, but it, it's just insane thinking about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, let me see, he covers something here. So talk about the light cell hypothesis. Um, and this is a, actually a counterpart that he wrote. Uh, so he did write a paper on uh, the plausibility of light sales. 
Um, he says, Abiyali checked the numbers and his excitement grew. The idea I had proposed looked like a viable possibility. This led to a new question. What would we need to assume about a Muamua's size and composition to explain its deviation? The key question was how thin a Muamua had to be in order to possess the same area-to-volume ratio that accounted for its excess acceleration. We determined that a Muamua needed to be less than a millimeter thick for the force of sunlight to be effective. The implication of this was obvious. Nature had shown no ability to produce anything like the size and composition of what our assumptions suggested, so something or someone must have built such a light sail. A Muamua must have been designed, built, and launched by an extraterrestrial intelligence. Quote. Okay, so that sounds like he's saying he's he's twisting the math and the dimensions to fit the light sail hypothesis there. That doesn't sound like what's that's what they think the actual measurement was. Well, he's, st- he's still taking that off the light refraction of the initial figures. But and 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 you know what that wasn't in the book that I remember, John. I don't know if you do too. That might have been a little bit of a okay. Say it's this, this, this. He does use some plausibility again. If you saw a human being walking down a sidewalk and you know their waist was the size of a wrist and they're trying to you know you're trying to equate that size. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's still taking off configurations. If one thing that Av does, I don't think that makes wild hypothesis to try to match an equation he has necessarily. So. You know, and I don't know, John, if you got any input yeah, to that. Yeah, well, or not, I mean, but... all of his hypotheses are really grounded in science, right? Right. Like he's not—he's not making numbers up. He's not—he—he's taking the data that they've gathered, and he's assessing the data pretty much. Mm-hmm. And this is what he's getting to him. No, just the wording of the quote sounded like, oh, in order to account for this, that, and the other thing, that it needs to be a millimeter thick, and a millimeter thick wouldn't happen in, wouldn't happen naturally. Such and so, such, right. I, I get you. You know, you yeah, know what I'm saying? So, like, completely. is it a millimeter thick, or is he saying that if it's a light sail, it would need to be a millimeter thick? Right, right. That's where I'm like, wait, what? So, so yeah, so that... Well, yeah, that's like, is it a light sail, you know? If yeah. it is a light sail, then... Now, but if it's not a light sail, it can be thicker than a millimeter. Well, but he's taking off equation again. He's taking off calculations too. He's not Basically, wildly a path on the, the diameter. So who knows how thick it is? But they have determined that it was under one quarter of a mile in diameter and a hundred yards. Yeah, with whatever that means, and then God the rotation damn, of the eight had, hours too. I don't know about you guys, but I had to just remember what diameter was, and it made my brain hurt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, so that's the light sail, which is the number one thing that um, is taken out of the book. I think of what it could be, and you know, and again, we talk about buoys for an ancient civilization. Um, John, do you have any more notes on your side as far as a wrap up on Av's research? Um, I know you had a couple pages marked in here, and I don't know if they're relevant still. Uh, they're actually would like to cover a little bit about what some of the new, um, the new news is uh, with some of the researchers that are still studying this because you know this is still a thing for a lot of people, especially in the scientific community. Because if nothing else, even if you you scrap all that and you're kind of a skeptic on, you know, is it an ancient civilization? Is it a light sail? Is it this? Is it that? The reality is, and and I can't anybody who you know, unless you're absolutely closed-minded, I guess that's a possibility. But the whole point that it absolutely is an anomaly, it was an anomaly, it doesn't match anything we've ever seen in our history in space. 
that can't be discounted. Yeah, and I I think it's important to um think about the possibilities of these things because like when we rule out what it isn't, <clears throat> excuse me, then we need to start figuring out what it is. And to figure out what it is, you need to let your imagination wander. You need to discover other possibilities that aren't just so black and white. And science is never black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll leave it with like a this little good blurb that he says. And so in this book, yeah, he talks a lot about, you know, the science behind Oumuamua, what they've discovered, blah, blah, blah. But it is also a lot of like changing your mindset and how close-minded science is. And like, we really need to discover all possibilities Mm -hmm. and, you know, a hypothesis is just that it's a hypothesis. He's not stating that this is, this is, it's like, this is one hypothesis that we need to explore. And once we're done exploring it and we, you know, say the data eventually doesn't um, support this hypothesis, then all right, you scrap that hypothesis. Right. But until you can disprove the hypothesis, then it's completely possible. And and you need to disprove and every single point. The, you know, you go through your scientific method. Is this repeatable? Like, can't, like, so you need to create these sometimes out of the box hypothesis. And people have done that. Thousands as of years. As well, human civilization has gone on. He says, <clears throat> so he says, uh, scientific progress has been stifled many times over the years because the gatekeepers who established and enforced orthodoxy believe they knew all the answers ahead of time. To state the obvious, putting Galileo under house arrest did not change the fact that the earth moves around the sun. Centuries later, the world is unanimous in siding with Galileo. But if that is only, but if that is the only lesson we take from that moment in time, I worry that we will fail to learn another crucial insight. Our debts run to both Galileo and to the authorities who muzzled him. It is not enough to celebrate the first. We must also learn to guard against the second. Absolutely. Well said. You know, and I was going to bring up that Galileo example too, um, because, you know, we may think we're smart nowadays, which, you know, of course, we've made leaps and bounds of technology, whether it's space or exploration, whatever have you. But the reality is, yeah, you still have closed doors, even in science, a lot of them. Um, yep. And it's very hard to open that up. And I think, you know, nowadays, you know, God, it, it's in a weird way, the stigma's getting even worse. Because yeah, you have it, all these to things me, added to it. It makes sense, especially in science, right? Because like you mentioned, the gatekeepers and, and they talk about this a lot in uh the trickster and the paranormal, but like uh it's an it, it the more institutionalized science becomes and the less like uh crazy mad scientist on a hill you get and more like lab coats in a well structured environment, uh the more status is important. Yeah, And the more they want to maintain their important status as scientists and not be thought of as Doc Brown or Frankenstein or whatever, you know, yeah. um, so they will like dismiss out of fact or out of hand things that could be true or that are at least interesting to think about just because they're serious scientific people and they don't want to risk that. Uh, they don't want to accept that risk to their status that would come with saying, well, fuck it, maybe Maybe it is a, a light sail or a spacecraft or something made by a distant civilization we know nothing about other than this thing that came cruising by. You know, yeah. And, and yeah. honestly, to play devil's advocate, in a way, I don't blame them because, you know, there's something that is said for 
a reputation and a well-founded reputation, and you don't want to put that in jeopardy. You know, we are still all just, you know, money walks, right? I mean, we're still living a life. We still have to pay well, our bills. Well, I mean, and- even Galileo on house arrest was on house arrest in a fucking super nice pimp-ass villa. Right. And he still got to, like, fucking <laughs> do all the astronomy his heart desired and be waited on hand and foot by servants. It's not like he was being tortured. They were just like, hey, we don't like what the implications of this, so don't talk about it publicly anymore. He refused to not talk about it publicly. So they're like, all right, you can't leave your estate anymore. Yeah, right. Like, oh, right. sadness. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he kind of says, <laughs> you know, many scientists see themselves as like a breed apart, members of an elite intelligence, uh, intelligentis, intelligentsia. Um, uh, yes, <clears throat> the intelligentsia. Yeah, they want to separate themselves from the rabble. And, uh, you know, he says that if lay people knew the messy reality of science, that it's full of starts and stops and dead ends, they brand every result as preliminary or questionable. Got a good point. um, You know, says this withholding strategy has added the benefit of making scientists look smarter than we actually are and adding to its appeal, its limits outside criticism says, but that approach is wrong. Keeping the public informed is our duty. And not just because so much scientific research is taxpayer funded, a public that is deeply informed, engaged, and enthusiastic about scientific advances is a public that directs not just its financial support, but the interests and efforts of its children, its brightest minds toward the most confounding challenges. And in that spirit, being more open as to what we know and what we do not will increase scientists' credibility over the long haul. Shutting the public out only uh, shutting the public out until the very end can also lead to mistrust. After all, the anomalies we confront are not for scientists alone. They confront all humanity. And when there are breakthroughs, much like medical advances, it is to the benefit of everyone. We should show the world our work in progress, especially when it is full of uncertainties and buffeted by competing interpretations due to lack of conclusive evidence. We should let everyone see how surprised we often are at what we find. Absolutely. Here, here, you know, and that's one thing that um, before we get into one other thing, too, that we want, of course, we want to counterbalance and talk about, you know, not just his research, but I think that's what I find most admirable about him is that he sees that and he states that, you know, you may may not like his theory or believe in his theory, but he really has his heart set for what he believes in. He really wants the public trust. He really wants to just have that open mind and that open mindset. And and right there, that quote is just very well said. You know, and that, that's why I like the book so much. I think because he had a lot of those quotes in there, and he had a lot of personable things in there too. So, yeah, and he but. he really breaks it down to where a moron like me can understand it. <laughs> yeah, like all of us here, right? Exactly. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. Fucking awesome. Yeah, all yeah, right, yeah. Cool. Um, so we would be amiss if we didn't have the other side. Not really necessarily the other side, but let's say this: the the story behind Amuamua is still being studied, is still being researched. Just because it came by, you know, in the year it did, and you know, of course, we've had a pandemic and everything else going on, um, doesn't mean that that study necessarily stopped. Um, do we want to cover a little bit about a new news article that we saw here recently? Well, yeah. So on March 19th, uh, Tim McMillan and Micah Hanks wrote a story that talking about these two scientists from the university of Arizona, that they believe they've solved the mystery behind Oumuamua. 
So these guys um, published some papers in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets, Astrophysicist, uh, Dr. Alan Jackson and Dr. Stephen Dash say Oumuamu was likely a broken off chunk of a distant Pluto-like exoplanet. And they're quoted as saying, this this research is exciting in that we've probably resolved the mystery of what Oumuamua is, and we can reasonably identify it as a chunk of an exopluto, a Pluto-like planet in another solar system, said Dr. Desch, co-author of the new study. Um, Until now, we've had no way to know if other solar systems have Pluto-like planets, but now we have seen a chunk of one pass by Earth. Hmm. Interesting. which I, you know, I'm I like that I, was a plausibility out there from the beginning when they first cited it. Was it was it something off a chunk of planet? But mm-hmm. again, if that's the case, if that's the case, it doesn't explain the reflection of the material of what it was made out of. It doesn't explain the deviation. Well, they're saying that the hydrogen ice or whatever is why it was so luminous. <sighs> yeah, but um, we covered that though. I mean, that was yeah. that was something that wasn't picked up. They say Oumuamua is likely to be composed of frozen nitrogen comparable to the Neptunian moon Triton, as well as the distant dwarf planet Pluto. Hmm. So, and they say regarding the odd elongated flat shape of Oumuamua, as the outer layers of nitrogen ice evaporated, the shape of the body would have become progressively more flattened, just like a bar of soap does as the outer layers get rubbed off through use. But Avi says that there was nothing detected. Right. Right. Several times over. It wasn't getting thinner. It was maintaining. It was, it had a smooth acceleration and Mm -hmm. it maintained its shape the entire time. And not one satellite picked up any type of, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but if hydrogen is evaporating their words, layers of nitrogen ice evaporated wouldn't nitrogen ice be picked up by these satellites that are specifically looking for these that, that's what they're designed to see yes right yeah and again and, and again avi i don't think he's again his calculations that he's coming off of of other telescopes and things that are that's what they're designed to see on top of the fact is you add that this is an interstellar object so we saw it for what 11 days if that's the case how the fuck would it get this far? So not it, I mean, it's very possible if it didn't go through any other solar systems, right? If it didn't come close to any other stars, then there's no reason it would melt. Well, maybe right um, next door, maybe. Yeah. I, you know, and, and uh, these guys are saying that uh, the lack of a detectable comet tail, high reflectivity and deviation and course as it passed the sun can all be accounted for. It was composed of frozen hydrogen. Um, so I, I don't really know how it says they figured out that it was frozen, frozen hydrogen. Yeah, I read that article. and I didn't see that come out either. It, it's kind of how Avi got to his uh, light sail hypothesis. Um, it's like kind of where the data took them. But them b- being the type of dudes that don't want to think about it being something made by an extraterrestrial civilization. Um, them looking for a natural explanation but using basically the same math uh they're saying that they thought it this could all be accounted for it uh melting away and losing more than 95 percent of its mass during its close encounter with the sun which 
if it didn't pass through any other solar systems and didn't have any other closer close encounters with uh with any other um stars then that's totally possible but um i I don't see in here how they uh and i read this probably an hour or so before we got on um and i didn't catch anything in there regarding this and i'm not as i'm skimming through it again now of of how uh if it was nitrogen ice, why it still wouldn't like leave visible off gassing. Yeah. Like it doesn't you guys say are talking about, it right? doesn't say that in the article. Yeah, it I just didn't catch says it that's the reason it didn't get picked up is because it was made of hydrogen ice, but it's like, but what? Like, yeah, I mean, to a layman, you know, to an idiot such as myself, you know, I, there's something going over my head with that. It's like, well, no signatures got picked up. So, so can the Iraq and the stereo and the Soho not pick up? Do they only look for carbon dioxide? That seems really short-sighted. Yeah. Why would they only look for carbon right. dioxide? Especially right. don't those look for exoplanets or am I thinking of other I think observatories? that's something else. I think well, this is specifically. The Soho and the stereo were not set up to look for comets. Actually, they right. just inadvertently somehow like – Okay, so maybe the reason they don't see nitrogen off-gassing is because that's not their intended purpose, so they're looking for something else. But if their intended purpose was to look for uh, exoplanets, then basically how we tell what an exoplanet is like is by looking at the gases and what colors they give off, basically, um, by interacting with their star's sunlight, Um well, biosignatures, right? I mean, that's what we're really getting into when we talk about that. Like, what? what yeah, but it looks up? for more than carbon dioxide, is what well, I'm trying right. to get Apparently, at. Apparently, right. the stereo and Soho were built to observe the sun. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the thing, too, with all this. You know, I'm not going to close the door on what they're saying. Josh, you brought up a very good point. That's their calculations. That's, that's what led, us, led them down that road. I mean, that makes sense. We would be amiss if we sat here and said, nope, oh, God damn, it's an alien thing. You know, because yeah, that's no, not no, the I'm, case. I'm, I'm but com- completely open to this. Like, okay, is yeah. it an exoplanet? But Ooh, you got a good I, point. There's just I don't some see any here. more evidence for this than I do for a light sail, honestly. I, like, likewise. I, like, I get to the same same conclusion of like okay you it they're looking at the data and they're and they're letting it lead them to what they think is a plausible explanation and they don't want to think about space junk from other civilizations and avi is looking at the same math and thinking i'm open to the possibility of space junk from other civilizations and once you're open to that to, to that that kind of makes more sense than just a random right. weird chunk of ice. Right. Right. To yeah. people like us anyway. Well, you know, yeah. And <laughs> I guess exactly. It's a thing is this is again, this is what we talked about in the very beginning. You know, it's it's scientists making calculations and making a you know, you can't get anywhere unless you kick around the football a bit, right? And have these different ideas and have these different things kind of integrate in them to their own selves, I guess, in a way. Um I don't know, but there's just some things when you talk about what, um, you know, AV mentioned, and then you talk about what their calculations are and what they're saying. The, again, the deviation is a big throwback for me. 
you know, even if you you chuck the reflective thing out and it you just it just doesn't make sense. It should have followed you the sun is fucking huge. Everything gets trapped in that gravitational orbit. For it to just make it this little move off. Yeah, I think the I deviation don't know. of trajectory is that's a standout for me. That's yeah. like a slap and, in the face. And you know, like this is a pretty short article. You know, relatively short article. So, I mean, obviously we're not getting all of their their calculations stats and everything, and right? What right. brought them to this conclusion or anything? Yeah. And this is just um, an example. There's other scientists out there that have other <sighs> theories. You know, that came up with this whole thing. That's just, these aren't the only two or the only three. I mean, obviously, this is a once in a lifetime thing that we've encountered, um, and people are going to look into it. And people, the, the shitty thing is, we literally have 11 days of information to gather, and half of that was shot to shit because we didn't know what we're looking at and we couldn't focus on it. So yeah. if we had that opportunity, that, that literally might have changed the tides a bit. But this is what we have to deal with till, you know, knock on wood, maybe we see this anomaly again in some form or another, you know? Uh, I stick with my previous statement in our text conversation. Boo these men. Boo <laughs> them. Touche. Pissing on our chariots. Ancient s- civilization. That's right. Maybe not even that ancient. You know what I mean? Right. Like if it's coming from Vega, like I know it's not as close as Alpha Centauri, but it's not mm. that far. Right. Coincidentally. Interestingly enough, it's coming from Vega, which is the star system that the transmission uh, originated from that they get in contact. Um, well, didn't they also have Yodi something? Foster. I, I love, great show, by the way. Wasn't Vega that area where they remember? Was it last year or a year and a half ago? I lose track during a pandemic. You know, sorry, guys. But didn't they have... It's been 100 years. (laughs) It's fucking insane. But didn't they have a report about a flash of something that they were picking up and they thought it was a structure because they couldn't account for the pattern, the light pattern that it was actually putting out? Do you guys remember Uh, that? I don't remember it being a structure. I remember them just getting a signal and being like, this doesn't seem like a typical like pulsar, but it might be something like that. Yeah, like it wasn't a star because... It wouldn't act like this, but the, it wasn't that from the Vega region or uh, I don't remember where that was from. Yeah. I do remember that my parents had a Vega station wagon when I was growing up. Oh man. Four forty contact, but, um, we mentioned it. Yes, <laughs> we did mention it. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we were still talking about it or not. Yeah. No, now I'm talking about uh, the car. My parents had when I was like six, I know, but right before that, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> yes. Contact, we were talking yeah, about absolutely. contact. Okay. So anyway, um, I would like to, like John, right at the end of your notes, um, it says uh, something about answer to the Fermi paradox. Oh, yeah, I can read that if you want. Yeah, I was, that's super interesting to me because, like, uh, when I was a freshman in college, um, I took a had to get, like, special permission to take a 300-level physics class because it was titled The Search for Extraterrestrial Life. Um and I hadn't your, your obviously hadn't taken any of the prerequisite <laughs> physics classes, um, but it was just basically the whole class was about the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. And I, so I'm super interested whenever scientists seriously talk about those. Yeah. Yeah. He mentioned yeah. Drake a lot. Well, so if anybody doesn't know who Fermi was, uh, his name's Enrico Fermi and he was like a huge uh, giant in the world of physics in the 20th century. 
And um, he raised a question. How do we explain the paradox that given the vastness of the universe, the probability of extraterrestrial life seems high, yet there is no certain evidence for anything but terrestrial life. If life is common in the universe, he asked, where is everybody? So in 1998, the economist Robin Hansen published an essay titled The Great Filter. Are we almost past it? So perhaps, big perhaps, perhaps the answer to Fermi's paradox was Hansen argued that throughout the universe, a civilization's own technological advancement overwhelmingly predicts its destruction. The very moment when a civilization reaches our stage of technological advancement, the window where it can signal its existence to the rest of the universe and begin to send craft to other stars is also the moment when its technological maturity becomes sufficient for its own destruction, whether through climate change or nuclear, biological or chemical wars. Yeah. Interesting. And very so, plausible. So we're like, we're right? basically all at the cusp of this too. Like, right. We're right. going to revert to, uh, I don't know if anybody's played that video game horizon zero dawn. It's like one of the six video games I've ever played, but <laughs> it's in the future, but they're all, you know, living like it was the past with like weird, like little ancient relics from this time. Or oh, like they, they, yeah. They like, uh, like the one of my favorite genres of sci-fi steampunk is usually a lot like that where there's like arcane technology mixed with future technology mixed with it's like where you get westerns in space basically like shit like firefly and serenity and you know what i mean where like uh some of the technology seems kind of antiquated and and out of place and some of it seems like uh like futuristic um bioshock i think is Bioshock's another one like that. I love Bioshock. Like that. Um, But honestly, like that's the thing too, is because Fermi's paradox uh, was kind of an answer to Drake's equation, right? So like uh, the math, like Drake played fast and loose with loose with the map math, because obviously we don't know exactly how many like stars there are and exactly how many of them have worlds that are, you know, rocky planets within the, uh, goldilocks zone zone, and we don't know uh how life in other parts of the universe may or may not rely on the same conditions that we have here so there's there are a lot of variables that he was just like all right fuck it let's ignore that and let's Mm -hmm. talk about just we know there are trillions of stars based on that we know that the the statistically speaking there has to be a shitload of planets that are similar to earth basically in structure and distance from their host stars. So basically the universe should be teeming with life. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that Fermi was at lunch with Drake one time, or he was at lunch with somebody who was, who, and they were talking about that equation and, and how he came up with the paradox was, uh, if the universe is teeming with life, where the fuck is everybody? Right. And, and that's the paradox. And, um, and his, his answer for that was just the astronomical distance where that term come from, comes from, Mm -hmm. but the astronomical distance between stars that basically the universe is teeming with life and we're all, and we're too far away to ever fucking see each other, which is far away. Fucking sad as fuck. If you think about it, it Um, it is, it's pretty awful to be depressing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
why we're on that subject. So, you know, because of course, you know, you're listening to strange uncles. We so much want to believe that there's aliens. There's some of us that already believe that there's aliens on the show. I mean, there's you know? definitely aliens. There, like, there is. There's, there's no there, way absolutely. that there isn't. Even if they're just millions. microbes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there's no way that there is not an intelligent civilization somewhere amongst the vastness of the universe. It would be insane to to think about. There has to be a trillion earths. And, and what do you, and you look at space, you're mm -hmm. saying that we're it. Are they coming here? Who's to say? Well, 100%. Yeah. I believe there's definitely intelligent civilizations and there's definitely unintelligent just microbes and you know yep s- molecular beings on other planets like absolutely. well and, and there's like another like, part i don't what is it uh, jupiter's moons definitely water on there like there's definitely yeah. things floating. uh titan there's definitely liquid water underneath yeah. the ice yeah, yeah um in there for, like i don't know and i don't know if this is part of uh if it if this is part of the uh, great filter theory that you just mentioned, or if it's like adjacent to it, but there's like actual actually a physical barrier to space travel, which is uh, outside the heliosphere, which you can assume that most star systems have something similar, right? Like a basically a gigantic magnetic field generated by their central star that that protects you know, that area that the solar system is in anyway, outside of that um, in interstellar space, it's full of like dust and debris that's moving so fast that it would just shred the shit out of stuff. So, um, so like that alone makes traveling between the stars physically very daunting. If you look at um, not just like, if you look at our current state of technology today and you try to take that interstellarly, it's not going to fucking happen. Like, A, it's going to take so fucking long that the ship would have to be way too big to get into orbit to be able to sustain life for a couple hundred years to make it to the next star. But also, like, it would get destroyed in the interstellar space, most likely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Honestly, that's kind of why I think that what I think with all these UFOs and stuff is I think they're from this planet. Yeah, uh, that's like what Keel said a lot too was like uh, the UFO. I forgot what his team, his term for ufologists was, but like uh, it wasn't exactly complimentary. (laughs) And um, he said that they all thought that that these uh, quote unquote aliens and, um, and, uh, and his, uh, and, and their spacecraft were from other planets when really they were just ultra terrestrials. Yep, absolutely. Well, with that being said, this is kind of what we're leading into, and then we're going to wrap up the episode. Again, so much we believe that there's something out there. There's got to be something out there. Um, We wanted to add to this show a clip, and this kind of ties in line with uh, what show we did two, three episodes ago. We had Stephen Bassett on um, in regards to disclosure and how many people really want it. And this is a clip that we found, and keep in mind this kind of – it's interesting, actually, the very end, which isn't very – it's just a 10-second blurb. But uh, this is Senator Mark Warner, Senator Mark Rubio, and Senator Harry Reid um, with Obama actually capping it all off in regards to talking about disclosure. disclosure. So uh, check this out, guys. I'm concerned about anything that might threaten the health and well-being 
of you know our pilots uh, if there is anything that is um, uh, disturbing their flight patterns uh, or potentially a threat, um, I think it's appropriate that the Navy and the armed forces generally uh, take this into consideration. We have uh, things flying over our military bases and places where we're conducting military exercises, and we don't know what it is, and it isn't ours. So that's a legitimate question to ask. We have situations where... Um, we have, in the northern part of America, we had missile bases that, how many of them were stationed there? I don't know how many was on it, uh, but it's all in documents. But scores and scores of mostly men up there would come out and look up there, oh, I wonder what that is, it just, and they wouldn't leave. The communications in the missile defense installation was shut down. Didn't happen once, more than once. We have things in ships at sea. These things in the water, what is that? They can't get rid of them? There's nothing on radar, because why? Because the whole communication system on the ship's dead. This is all documented now. And now we can have pilots and shipmasters who are see these strange events report it back to their superiors because they're not crazy. It's been happening for a long time. So why shouldn't we study this? Any UFOs? Did you ask about that? I've certainly asked about it. And? Can't tell you. Sorry. Okay. All right, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> Good old Obama capping that off. Yeah, so, but honestly, you know, how much are they going to tell a president that's in there for four to eight years? Right, exactly. And that's career, another thing. Career yeah. military guy or anything, you know. Yeah. The discussion that we're having kind of goes hand in hand with disclosure in, in a way, you know, just because of, um, you know, that hope, that possibility, you know, that's out I there. I mean, well, disclosure's you know? already happened. They've already admitted that there's shit that they don't know what it is and it's not ours. Right. And it's they don't think it's Russia or China, so... Yeah. Clearly, there's something unexplained in the skies that not even our military knows. So if to, they, me, that's, to me, that's disclosure. I don't know what more people want. Like, I think yeah, just there's this not going to be a black to it. I press conference it, on the White yeah. House lawn, right? With exactly. uh, with fucking Todd from Rigel Seven. Um, and even if there was, I mean, would you guys fucking believe that? Like the government that you if you want to take it to its natural end, the government that's been lying to you since at least 1947 about all this shit, all of a sudden tells you the yeah. truth, quote unquote, are you going to believe it? Well, you that's know, what I'm not. That, that's Agreed. why I was trying to ask Stephen Bassett that question. I'm like, say, and I don't know if he, I don't know if I asked it in the correct way or if he didn't understand, but that's what I meant. Like who's to say the government isn't pulling a Richard Doty on us. Yeah, right, right. exactly. Yeah, like no, no, that that wouldn't happen. I'm like, all right. right. Well, yeah, but okay. but no, Fair it, it kind of has <laughs> happened, and it is happening in a way. Yeah. So I mean, you know, Richard Doty thing. worked for the government, so yeah, yeah that's why I was exactly. like, well, right. I didn't think it was that crazy of a question, but yeah, but anyway, yeah, but uh, um, yeah, that's Oumuamua. Yeah. Everybody buy the book Extraterrestrial: The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, written by Avi Loeb. Um, great, it's a great read. read. It's yeah. really interesting, and it really makes you think a lot more than than just Oumuamua makes you makes you just think about humanity and all that. I, I think, and that's a good point. I think that's what I liked about it most of all was that it wasn't just about the study and the calculations of what Oumuamua is or isn't, but it's everything around that. It kind of really, after you read the book, it makes you feel kind of minuscule, 
and um mm. you know just just got it just a well-written book covers a little bit of his history too growing up in israel and some other stuff and um just well 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 read and it's an easy read like you said john really really quick read so yeah anyway well, and, it, and it and it makes you uh just everybody take care of your surroundings take care of the earth mm-hmm. try and do the best you can in your immediate circle yeah because we've only got one earth and that's all we got Yep. For our kids and our grandkids and grandkids after that. So absolutely, absolutely. So anyway, if you guys have any uh, any response back to this show, you know, like I said, it the exciting subject for us. But we've been wanting to talk about it for a while, and it was John's idea to kind of bring it up and and. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Conversation well worth having. I'm I'm hoping that there's more things in the future that happen like this that we have the chance to pay more attention to. We've got more time to gather scientific, you know, fact and theory behind it and calculations. But uh, you know, for as we stand now, this is all we got. You know, so we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, if you have any comments or feedback, please feel free. You can write strangejungles at gmail dot com. Um, you can call our hotline at eight zero one two five two sixty nine. Yeah. 35? 45. 45. Exactly. Um, I thought you were going to nail it this time. Well, I, well, I did nail it. I was waiting for somebody to blurb in there, but nah, that's okay. You know. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I wasn't sure which. I was like, is this a blurb one or are you just going to say it? <laughs> just going to say it. Um, and then also keep in mind, too, we are going to do, uh, we have a trip here coming shortly what less than a week out i think and yeah leave this sunday yeah we're going to talk about that a little bit and let you guys know yeah don't know what's going to happen if nothing you know might i know be something. what's going to happen i'm going to go get drunk at little alien <laughs> well we know at least 100 <laughs> percent yes <laughs> maybe there's a the, little bit more the knowns are there so. the known unknowns are there like who knows what's going to happen besides that besides that, someone yeah, may yeah. or may not get pissed on who knows could well, turn into a wild weekend. Yeah, uh, who knows? I don't want to be the one to be pissed on, but we'll see what happens. You I'll know. try my best. Won't well, be then the- don't fall asleep first, Shane. <laughs> well, won't be the first time, I'll tell you that. So anyway, um, hopefully you liked our episode and follow our social media platform, follow some podcast platforms, uh, social media. Anybody want to cover those real quick? Strange Uncles Podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Strange Uncles on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. Go check it out. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And that's when it drops, folks. So anyway, keep in mind we've got some guests lined up here for the month of April, along with, of course, our upcoming news episode. And uh, we actually have one guest that I think accepted, which uh, kind of excited to have him on, and that probably will be towards late April, early May, um, yeah, something awesome. that we kind of we were involved in uh, for those listeners that uh, know us. And, uh, yeah, it'll be a nice follow-up for him for sure. Speaking of things we were involved in for some listeners that know us have we talked about patreon where you can find those things we were involved in for some listeners that know us <laughs> we can absolutely talk about patreon go ahead josh since you open that gate uh go check out our patreon it's at uh, patreon.com strange uncles uh we have all different tiers where you can uh join and support if you dig what we're doing which we hope you do um we have bonus content, um, ad-free episodes, um, bonus extensions, and Patreon exclusives. So check it out. Um, you can hear uh, the audio of our recent remote viewing sessions and see what our targets were and how successful we were. Yeah, absolutely. And we're trying to get a, I guess, a strange book club off the ground. 
Um, still in progress, but we'll see what happens. For those of you who like reading what we read and uh, you know other recommendations, we'll throw that out there. So that'll be part of Patreon as well. So yeah. Anyway, um, anybody got anything else to wrap this up with? No. Negative Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. <laughs> All right. With that being said, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you guys for doing the research. Great conversation, and close the gates.